from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have an author of epic prose that defies the confines of genre. He blends aspects of fantasy, sci-fi, and cyberpunk into a seamless and captivating tapestry of storytelling. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, The Rivener. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Garrett Godsey. Garrett, welcome to the show. Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 15th day of October 2023. I don't normally read fantasy, but when your work of dark fantasy, The Rivener, was recommended to me, it really caught my interest. And when I discovered that the story involved the nature of reality and its connection with consciousness and physics... I realized I had struck a gold mine, so I'm super stoked to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks. The genre has been an interesting thing to try to pin down since the beginning. Like, dark fantasy is the easiest one to throw at it, but it's mm-hmm. certainly not only dark fantasy. I want to call it metapunk, but nobody meta-punk. has coined that term yet, and I don't think I'm allowed to coin the term. Someone else has to do it for me. Someone cool. <laughs> Well, so the book is about a young man named Kid who is an orphan and works for, I believe, a crime syndicate or something crime syndicate-like, and he makes discreet deliveries to undisclosed recipients. He's tasked with making a particularly lucrative drop, which he gladly accepts because he views it as his way out of the city as well as his situation. However, the drop does not go as planned and thrusts him into a very dangerous situation, which is where all the action begins. So, I was curious to know, did you get any inspiration for the story from, or do you see any parallels between your story and the gig economy? Um, I don't know about the gig economy exactly, but I grew up personally pretty rough, and you know, you just do whatever you need to do to survive. And <laughs> without incriminating myself, it can go into the gray and dark gray areas <laughs> of the law pretty quickly, especially the stuff that's lucrative. Mm-hmm. 
you know, ideally you find your way out of that at some point, but it certainly is a constant temptation when you are not only not on the bottom rung of anything, you're just not on the ladder at all, you know, Mm -hmm. and you see that a lot in certain types of communities. So yeah, just survival, you know, when you're in survival mode, you do whatever you need to do. And kid happens to be surviving in urban San Francisco. So that lends itself to certain types of activities. In this case, being a courier for a crime syndicate. And where was it you grew up again? So I moved around a lot, but I primarily grew up in the Ozarks, actually, Mm. which some people actually know where that's at now, thanks to the Netflix show, (laughs) but Northern Arkansas, Southern Missouri, basically a Tom Sawyer running around doing Tom Sawyer stuff. Gotcha. (laughs) Well, as you mentioned, kind of a morally gray area growing up sometimes. How did you approach the development of Kid's character, especially considering the morally gray area he operates in? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I alluded to some of my experiences and that definitely colored some things. And, you know, typically the people that you meet in most cases, of course, even if they're doing morally gray or, you know, bad things, they're not generally bad people. They have found themselves in a circumstance and you know, there's a lot of things to lead that lead to that and a lot of things that lead out of it too. And also San Francisco, as a lot of people know, has a pretty large homeless population. Mm. And I spent quite a bit of time before writing this book, talking to and interviewing a lot of the street kids there in the hate district. And that definitely enlightened me a lot because like my personal experience was fairly rural. Whereas the urban experience was not something that I touched on a lot personally, but I got to learn a lot from them about that. And by the hate district, you're referring to the hate Ashbury district, like of yeah, the correct. hippie Sorry. movement I, fame? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The hate Ashbury claim to fame. Yeah, it's a, it borders the edge of Golden Gate Park. So mm-hmm. it's a popular spot for the transient. One fun thing I learned is that a lot of them prefer to call themselves travelers. Mm. There are a lot of various derogatory names and nicknames and stuff for them. And the one they tend to prefer is Traveler, which I thought was pretty cool. And that kind of inspired, I don't want to spoil anything in the book, but the people with special talents in the Mm -hmm. book, they're called Travelers as well. Any remnants of the hippie movement and the sexual revolution still kind of lingering in that area at all? Honestly, not really. It's no. pretty kitschy at this point. It's more of a tourist draw. You know, there's mm. like head shops and you can buy bongs and weed or whatever and, you know, find some beaded bracelets or woven tapestries and stuff like that. But <laughs> it, it's definitely not like a countercultural area. It's too cool now to be cheap. It's expensive and therefore, you know, gentrified. It's not exactly counterculture anymore. Kind of a hipster. Yeah, hipster pretty area. much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much San Francisco in a nutshell. Uh, Well, Kid's female love interest, Alice, was a fascinating character. Are there aspects of Alice's character that you feel are often misunderstood or overlooked by your readers? Because she's very complicated without, you know, revealing any spoilers, I guess, kind of a dual allegiance, for lack of a better word. Yeah, without spoiling anything, I kind of hope so. (laughs) Her character is enigmatic, and she is not one to reveal things to people unless she wants them to know about it. So she has her outer self, and she has her inner self, and she keeps the inner self very guarded. 
And there are times she's the kind of person that doesn't always understand that in herself either. And so understanding her is not an easy task for anyone, including herself. And so I wanted that to be clear or rather unclear to the reader too. And did you have anybody in particular that you based her on? Because the person that formed in my mind, at least the appearance was vaguely familiar and I could not put my finger on it. Yeah. So sort of, I don't want to get in too much trouble here, but <laughs> she may or may not be based at least partly on a, uh, ex-girlfriend of mine. Who, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who grew up in a pretty fundamentalist evangelical kind of community. Uh-huh. And uh, because of that was quite, I don't want to say oppressed necessarily, but pretty much. And, uh, academic success, things like that were paramount and outward facing persona was paramount. Anything that would damage that outward facing persona was, you know, kept hidden. And so there was very much two sides to a coin. There was the outer coin and the inner side. But, uh, you know, there was always this desire for, and again, I hope I'm not spoiling anything here, but a desire for freedom, but at the same time, an equal and opposite desire for belonging to that community, whether you like it or not. Like, super hardcore like are we talking about maybe i don't know pentecostal or <laughs> i mean it's not exactly my area of expertise because i didn't grow up religious personally but to me it seemed pretty hardcore yeah. <laughs> i don't know where it sits on the full spectrum but you know they weren't like uh was she allowed to cut her hair <laughs> uh yeah yeah okay. you know they didn't they weren't forced to wear dresses or anything like that she was allowed to cut her hair but mm-hmm. there's definitely a lot of rules a lot of expectations a lot of hellfire brimstone yeah, definitely. Uh, Almost every conversation, that kind of thing came up. Were you going to hell? Oh, definitely. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's pretty yeah, fun. That was never in question. Your boyfriend definitely going to hell. Is this what you want to do? Uh, <laughs> I guess they were pretty hardcore then. You seem like a nice guy. Somebody that wouldn't go to hell. I don't know. You could be a serial killer. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Well, they say, you know, the rock and rollers say the cool people are in hell. So that's where you want to go anyway. That's yeah. After party that. Yeah, definitely. Well, the antagonist of the story, simply known as Mother, even though she does have a proper name, stands out as a formidable presence in the story. How did you avoid making her a one-dimensional antagonist? What would you say are the complexities or nuances that you incorporated to give depth to her malevolence? Yeah, so, you know, similar to the protagonists and most of the characters in the book, they tend to be on a sliding scale of gray rather than pure black or white. And I find that to be typically true in life. However, I also find that a person can get lost in the dark gray and over time they can get really, really far to the side. Mm. And once they're there, they kind of stay there. And for anybody that's meeting them for the first time, it might seem that they are pure evil. Maybe they are at that point, but rarely is it the case that they were that way always. You know, there's typically some dimension and some sort of, you know, character arc, if you will, that led to that point. And, uh, you know, they say, write the story that you want to read. And I personally prefer dimensional characters overall, but definitely dimensional villains. I think a good villain can make a story or break it, or a bad villain can break a story. Mm. And yeah, paper cutout villains are definitely not my flavor. Okay. Well, 
Were there any literary or mythological influences that informed the creation and development of Mother's character? For some reason, I was getting little hints of the, I don't know if she was considered a witch or what, but from Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> or I guess it wasn't yeah. Jack and the Beanstalk, it was that adaptation. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, to answer your question simply, yes, very much so. Some of the earliest books that I loved were myth anthologies. I loved Norse stuff and Greek stuff. And then later on, when I got older, I discovered, you know, older things like Sumerian, Mayan, Aztec, you know, you name it, Indian for Hindi, Asian, all of it. I think all of it's fascinating. And you find that most of these mythologies tend to make an attempt to describe certain archetypes that they have in common. And so without spoiling it too much, well, maybe this will spoil it, but <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to say this without spoiling anything. Well, no, it pretty much comes out the second you meet the character. So I think I can spill it. So listeners at home are used to my curiosity ruining things. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just thinking of like, if it would ruin the journey in the book, okay. I don't think it will. Cause this is the kind of thing that, you know, could have possibly made it onto the synopsis on the cover. Cause it's, it comes in really early. It's not something I tease out and it's interesting. So, um, Mara or mother, she's been around for a very, very, very long time, you know, way past the time when any records were kept beyond oral stories, right? So mm -hmm. if you've got somebody who's popping in and out of history, you know, over the eons, what kinds of mythology might he or she inspire? And so that was kind of the idea there is that rather than mythology inspiring her, she inspired mythology mm -hmm. over the years. Well, how do you differentiate your work from other dark fantasy novels? What do you believe makes your story unique? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I didn't go into it making an attempt to, you know, differentiate it from dark fantasy. And in fact, I didn't really put the dark fantasy label on there until after a lot of early readers kept calling it dark fantasy. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I guess I wrote a dark fantasy novel. Like that wasn't my intent. I just wanted to write a story that incorporated a number of different themes and ideas that I had. So I suppose that's it. You know, I didn't go into it trying to write dark fantasy, but it came out with some pretty, you know, heavy dark fantasy themes. And so therefore mm -hmm. it was, but it not being the initial foundation, I suppose that differentiated it. But, uh, you know, the magic system, if you want to call it a magic system, you know, that's kind of a theme in the book is like, is it magic? Is it science? What is either one of those things? Those are just concepts. You know, mm -hmm. the, the world is strange. The universe is stranger. You know, there's no other like races necessarily you know there's no elves or orcs or anything like that but there are various types of beings you know so i think it kind of broke off of the whatever typical dark fantasy track it broke off of that pretty early because it's not where it even started yeah yeah i think it transcends a few different genres what would you say it kind of resides mostly in or has the most aspects of like sci-fi yeah. I mean, like I said, this has been tricky. And honestly, yeah. one of the reasons that I decided to do indie publishing, because it's not easy to put into a box and therefore it's not super easy to market. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'd say like dark urban fantasy, I suppose would be the quickest way to do it because it's, you know, although it's it makes an attempt to have like a soft science base to things, um, it's to an extent that it could be considered magic. So, mm -hmm. okay. So there's magic it's urban. Definitely. And it's certainly dark, 
you know, mm-hmm. bordering on horror in many parts of the book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you had to do it in three words, I'd say those would be the three dark yeah. fantasy. That's a tricky one though. And one I tried to avoid early on just because the dark fantasy genre is fairly packed full of a certain type of book, which I don't think this is. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I kind of bucked against that for a long time, but eventually I was just like, okay, fine. That's what it is. Yeah. I don't know if you remember or not. When I first started reading it, I made the mistake of referring to it as dystopian. And I think the reason for that was, is I assumed the lack of high technology meant that there had been some sort of event that had leveled that. Uh, I guess I was making that assumption because of the high level of high tech mental ability, as it were. But what time period would you say that that actually takes place in? Because, I mean, Alice is listening to an MP3 player. And by MP3 player, I don't mean an iPhone. I mean, one of those literal MP3 players. Like an old school iPod. Yeah. Yeah, So it's supposed to be present-ish day. Present-ish. Yeah. Sometime in the last decade or so. I mean, the story, she does mention that she picked up the iPod at a thrift store, um, basically because she thought it was cool and she needed something that doesn't have a GPS tracker in it. So she can still listen to music if she has to ditch her phone. Okay. And then kid, He's a street kid. He's got a smartphone. He's got a bunch of burners too, of course, but you know, he doesn't have a need to be plugged into a lot of technology all the time. And generally the story drives away from that necessitation. And then of course the alternate world, the dream, you know, there's no cell towers there. So (laughs) it's all connected. You don't need a cell tower. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can you hear me now? Always. Always. (laughs) I'm in your mind. Is this Jake from State Farm? Uh, (laughs) Well, as I said in the intro, your story delves deep into consciousness and reality. How do you feel, and I know you're not quite committal to the dark fantasy genre, but a lot of people have kind of set the book into it. How do you feel that at least sitting close to the confines of the dark fantasy genre lends itself to exploring deep psychological themes? Yeah. So, and this is definitely one of the parts where I I feel like it leans into fantasy, although there's plenty of sci-fi stories that have alternate universes too, Mm. but essentially this is a, almost like a portal world book, you know, there's two worlds and you can get to them via some doorway or space or, you know, portal. But in this case, that world that exists is created by the collective, you know, consciousness of humanity, the collective dream is an actual place that you can go to and each person's mind is a doorway to it and thus each person's mind is connected to that shared space so it allowed for essentially a a metaphor you know a safe metaphor to explore those things like in the case of kid he has experienced a lot of trauma in his life you know surviving the american foster system and living on the street and a lot of other things and because of that and because of surviving that, he's also not really want to talk about any of that kind of stuff, you know? So it's difficult to dig into a character like that. It's like, how do you learn about them if they won't talk about it? You can only have so many internal monologues before it gets old. And so in his case, there's a chapter or two or three where they have to literally go into his buried trauma because it exists. It's a place, mm. dangerous place. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, it being a dangerous place, many 
fantasy novels utilize external quests, but yours also delves deeply into internal journeys. How did you effectively blend those two to prevent the reader from getting lost? Because it's kind of a complex, I mean, it's simple on its face, but getting into it, it's kind of complex and gets a little meta. Like, how did you, was it by design or were you just kind of playing it by ear and feeling your way out? Yeah, um, a little bit of both, I would say. I knew the premise was opaque already at the beginning. It is confusing, but I leaned into that essentially. And so for the first part of the story, there's no huge attempt made to explain it. In fact, Kid is very confused. And he mentions that fact a number of times. And people who have grown up understanding these things, like Alice, she's a seasoned traveler of these things. She went to a school for it. She understands it very well. She does her best to explain it to him. Other characters try to explain it to him. And he gets it a little bit more and a little bit more over time. The main thing that he has to do is be able to wrap his head around the possibility of it more so than the theoretical concept of it. And so I tried to make it so that the character learns and accepts these things at about the same rate the reader does too. And so they kind of discover and say like, okay, so this is how it is together. To answer your question. Yeah. Well, as you've referenced and alluded to already, the dream is a fascinating realm in your book. And it reminds me of Jung's concept of the collective unconscious. Can you speak to any parallels between the two? Yeah, so it's loosely based on that idea of the collective unconscious that we all share a species level knowledge, right? It, it's sort of an amalgam of a few things, that being one of them. Another piece that brought it together was learning about mycelium networks. Mm-hmm. which are the fungal networks and forest floors that allow all the trees to communicate with each other, which is amazing. It's basically a biological internet mm-hmm. in a nutshell. And then uh, <laughs> and another thing we could probably go into more, but I had some pretty interesting psychedelic experiences where I felt like I could kind of tap into that a little bit. You know, at least it felt that way. And uh, that was actually another one of the big inspirations for the book, along with the other ones that I mentioned. Yeah, I forget who I was talking about it with on the show one time. I'm assuming you're familiar with Paul Stamets? Yes. Yeah. He talks a lot about those, um, when you're talking about like the internet among the trees, what, mycelium, what was it? Yeah, Pathways? mycelium networks. Networks, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get to psychedelics. I won't uh, belabor that <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah, the pathways I thought were interesting. Like when I learned about that, it connected with Young's collective unconscious and i was like well what if we do have that and if we did have that how would it actually work like you know is it just dna is it information stored in dna or is there still an existing communication pathway between people you know can you transfer information or can you only store it and therefore is every information piece unique like so i was trying to think of how that would actually work and there you go the dream yeah it kind of makes me think about you know there's like this pre-existing mycelium network that you're talking about and when it comes to us at least our previous primate ancestors developing consciousness period it makes me think we don't really understand consciousness there's a hundred different theories but one of them is the stoned ape theory yeah. um you know yeah, it's a monkey uh, accidentally ate some, ate some mushrooms and yeah because primates 
apparently of the period where the there was monkeys, yeah. or yeah, uh, primates of the period were known for foraging. I think it was under trees, like under downed timber, wherever, you know, moist, dark yeah. environments where mushrooms would uh, grow. So uh, wouldn't yeah. that be interesting if the network was transferred to what at that time would be the reptilian and mammalian and partial primate brain and just rapidly reorganizing it into this massive pathway. Yeah. It definitely gets into the like, you know, quasi science, metaphysical kind of stuff that can be difficult to take seriously. But at the same time, it's got some bite to it. Yeah. You know, fungi have been around longer than pretty much anything else. You know, they yeah. predate all animals by a long shot. Mm. And then, you know, you just see these similarities between cultures. I mean, every single culture on the planet has, especially the farther back you go, they have some sort of hallucinogen that they have found presumably by foraging mm. and they use it in ceremonies for various things. And, you know, when did that start? When did they start doing that? You can't tell because it predates history, but it started somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, in Jung's concept of the uh, collective unconscious, he believed that that's where the archetypes resided. The archetypes being the common themes that kind of manifest themselves in uh, cultures throughout the world, generations and generations that create these common characters, so to speak. So were any of the characters or entities within the dream in your book inspired by Jung's archetypes? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, when you get into character creation, it's almost impossible to avoid, mm. you know, because he is describing all characters that exist in their elementary pieces. And those pieces inevitably make up all the rest of the characters. And so you can kind of break them down. You know, it's almost like if you have many different loaves of bread and you break them down into the ingredients, you're going to get to a certain collection of ingredients. And to me, at least that's Young's archetypes. And so, yeah, definitely. But other than like reverse engineering it and saying, okay, well, this character I think fits the mother and this one fits, you know, they want freedom or whatever. I think it's also a good way to kind of, if you get stuck writing, especially if you find that you are having a hard time digging up a good motive for people, an emotional reason to try to do something, you can go back to those and say, okay, are they trying to accomplish one of these key things? Because basically every need and desire stems from one of these, if not typically a blend of a few of them. And if you can, then it's probably pretty solid because it's universal. Yeah. A friend of mine was talking about, I can't remember if he was referring to them as specifically masculine archetypes, but talking about the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how that collection of four is very effective in many different areas of uh, artistic creation, as well as, I guess, storyline. Oddly enough, the two examples he used were the Beatles and the Golden Girls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like, I think John Lennon was the lover. McCartney was probably the magician, huh? Yeah, it's been so long. I'd have to ask him. Yeah. Ringo. Ringo feels like a warrior. 
You think so? Oh yeah, he's back there beating on yeah, the drums. Got, beating on the drums. He had a warrior's nose, you know. Yeah, he's he like did. Ready to fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, for sure. I mean, those things. Like oftentimes the most loved characters, this is just my opinion, of course, but oftentimes the most loved characters are loved because they're not particularly complicated. You know, they're simple archetypes. And the reason that they're well loved is because the archetypes are universal. You know, everybody mm-hmm. can understand a mother's love. Everybody can understand the desire for freedom or for change under some type of oppressive rule, the desire to master something. You know, these are all very clear mm-hmm. for just, I mean, anybody. That was kind of the idea behind it. So, yeah. I agree. And you can see it like in you know, Star Wars. Like, In fact, most of the most popular stories, they're the simplest and easiest to trace directly back to either the hero's journey or these archetypes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you feel like there, and I'm not talking about religion, obviously, but do you feel like there are spiritual principles displayed in your novel? And are there any ways that they align with or deviate from traditional belief systems? Yeah, so that's a fun one because I had no intention or goal of, you know, getting on a soapbox and talking about anything, especially regarding religion in this. It was you know, not a can of worms I had any desire to open. But these are questions that I have contemplated my whole life pretty much. You know, I grew up somewhere where pretty much everybody was Christian. And if you weren't, it was weird. You know, I remember one kid in middle school told people that he was atheist and he was like straight up ostracized, like mm. full on ostracized. And I'm also atheist, maybe agnostic, you know, like I think atheism also requires a bit of arrogance to assume that you know so much that you know that there is nothing. I mean, almost as much as it takes to assume that there is something, you know, mm. so I suppose I'm a bit agnostic. But anyways, these questions would often come up because it was a constant topic of conversation, especially in the US. We're a pretty religious country. And so over the decades, you know, I've kind of formed my own observations on things. And although I didn't have a particular goal of getting them into the story, they kind of found their way in anyways. Yeah. One of the one of the ways I've heard people get around being an atheist, but uh, you know, somebody will say, Well, who do you think you are that you know that there's nothing out there that you have everything figured out. And they're like, well, I said, I don't believe in God. I didn't say, I know there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't say you could change that. You couldn't change my mind. You're welcome yeah. to change my mind it's at the moment yeah. you know, with the information I have. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting too, though, you were talking about the collective unconscious. Cause I, I think this rolls into that really well. Like my personal feeling and observation is that pretty much all the religions in the world are attempting to describe a similar thing that we all feel mm-hmm. and that most of us feel and that there is something great. You know, we don't know what it is. We don't know how to describe it, but we try, we do our best. You know, that's generally where art and music shine you know, because they're abstract. They don't require specific definitions in a lexicon to do that. They just are, and they are beautiful. And so it's like, you know, you've got this shape, whatever it is, this polygon, you know, and you have people from all different directions trying to describe it they're all going to have a different description because it doesn't look the same from every perspective, but it is the same thing. And so what is that? I don't know, but you know, this source essentially, and it doesn't go that deeply into that kind of a thing in the book, but it does get into, I think the idea of oneness or eternalness, I guess. So since you kind of identify as an atheist, 
would you, are, are you more of a materialist when it comes to consciousness? Like is your belief parallel processes in the brain producing a false sense of self? Or do you actually kind of subscribe to what's put forth in the book that we're all just kind of part of a more of a hermetic concept of a universal mind? Yeah, more towards what I put in the book. I okay. mean, in the book, I flesh it out into a epic, you know, fantastical landscape. I don't necessarily prescribe to all that, but I do tend to believe that we are bigger than ourselves okay. or that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Gotcha. That we're both unique and also very, very small. Yeah. Well, what inspired you to integrate real world scientific principles? Well, I guess probably the answer to that is maybe more of your uh, identification with the atheist, somewhat materialist scientific side. The question was going to be what inspired you to integrate real world scientific principles like quantum mechanics instead of relying solely on magical systems and also have you ever done any research or read about psi phenomena and its possible reality uh, I'm not familiar with sty phenomenon. It's like a $25 word for telepathy, precognition, all that kind of okay. stuff. Right. Yeah. Probably in a roundabout way then. Yes. I didn't know it had that moniker, but yeah. Yeah. I think that's just fascinating. I mean, similar to like the ocean, how much of the ocean have we explored? Not the majority. I think that we have explored and understand a similarly minuscule percentage of reality and the universe and how things actually work. And we learn stuff every day. So what is possible? Honestly, anything, you know, especially if you subscribe to the, um, you know, the infinite multiverse theory, which is mm. you know, literally anything's possible because it has to be if with a true infinite universe. Then there's nothing that's not possible because there's some permutation out there that has the necessary pieces to make that go. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff comes from, you know, when I was, not as much now, but when I was younger in my 20s, I liked to read a lot about quantum mechanics and string theory and ideas around how many dimensions are there really. Because we think of three you know, plus one if you include time. But a lot of these theories that have a lot of ground to stand on, you know, they describe up to 11 dimensions. And it's like, well, how does that work? Where do those go? And it's like, we can't even think about how it works because our minds were involved in three. So we can't even think about how to think about it. <laughs> you know, it's impossible. And so I think similarly, there's a lot of things that are possible that we just can't conceive yet. They are, and they're there. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, was the multiverse there's infinite universes. So after a certain point, every variation of every coincidence has happened to the point where somewhere in some distant universe, you and I are having this exact same conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> With like one little thing different or something, you know, or like where it starts repeating itself. Like we're not built to understand infinity. Yeah. We're just not, you know. Well, are there any particular philosophers or scientists? Because I know philosopher might be an odd question, but there's a lot of philosophers of mind that kind of dip their fingers into quantum mechanics. Are there any particular philosophers or scientists that you've read or researched? There's one that comes up on top of my head. I think it's Plato, I'm pretty sure, is this idea of form. Yeah, what is, you know, the eternal forms. The eternal forms, yeah. yeah, which feels almost like an early version of the collective consciousness, these 
universal things mm. like ideas, you know, beauty. What is beauty? It doesn't exist, but it does. Forms are the only pure things that there are, yet they don't exist, but they do. Mm. So it's like, what is that? So that's kind of one of them. And like, if you think about it, you could almost wrap that around to certainly some quantum ideas like quantum entanglement. And yeah, it's interesting how so many ideas tend to cycle around and wrap around and over the, you know, millennia. I mean, this stuff is fascinating and, you know, it definitely was a big part of uh, inspiring a number of things in the book, but I also wanted the book to be fun, yeah, not be a technical manual. So there was a balancing act there, but there was a lot of the ideas that certainly found their way in pieces um, and theme into it. Well, as far as the fictional aspect, how did you approach world building? Like when you were developing the dream and there's another part I don't want to mention unless you want to. I don't know if it's a spoiler. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah, don't, don't do that one. That would, that would be a spoiler. Listeners at home, you'll have to read the yeah. book. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah how did yeah. you uh, approach the world building with regard to that? Uh, world building is so much fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for everyone, but I love it. I mean, world building was my first introduction to storytelling, I think, before I knew that it was called world building, you know, probably as early as five or six. You know, I'd play a video game. I love video games. I still do. Big inspiration for my writing as well, by the way. You know, after I was done, I'm like, I'm not done. There's more stuff. So I'd cover my wall in graph paper and, and make new maps for Zelda or whatever it was, or side-scrolling adventures for Sonic and I would be like, okay, there's definitely more characters in this world. And I'd fill sketchbooks full of characters with statistics and power ratings and everything else. And it was just fun. So if anything, the world building part is too much fun. And I have to remind myself to actually write the story. <laughs> you have way more focus than I do. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I just, it's, it's just so much fun for me. Yeah. Um, both visual art. Uh, I kind of started off as an art kid really mm. growing up. I was like painting and drawing and stuff like that. That was more the side of it. I didn't get into directly writing stories until a lot later. But either one, I can lose myself for hours, hours and hours and hours. It's basically my stomach that brings me back to reality when I'm super hungry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I say uh, you have more focus than I do. I guess it depends on what it is because there are times where I'll be, you know, doing post-production or something and my fiance will come knocking on the door. It's uh uh, babe, did you eat dinner? It's nine o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody has their, their thing that gets them into a flow state, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes it's not necessarily a creative endeavor. It might be physical, you know, athletes certainly have a flow state, mm -hmm. you know, and they can ideally get into that for longer and longer stretches of time with practice. But yeah, post-production writing, you know, whatever, everybody's got a thing. Mm -hmm. The fun part is figuring out what yours is. So as you stated previously, the story takes place kind of present-ish. You said like within the last decade? Is yeah. That, yeah. I wanted it to be a little bit ambiguous. Okay. So at least as illustrated in the book, you know, there's the presence of smartphones, but nothing too incredibly out there. Like you're not talking about the Neuralink or anything like that. So the contrast between a lack of physical technology and the existence of advanced mental powers is very interesting. What led you to explore this dichotomy? Yeah, I don't know if it was super intentional. It was just that uh, today's technology just wasn't important to the story. You know, like, at least in my mind, hopefully it wasn't a, um, you know, like a stumbling 
piece for readers where they're like, wait, why come they don't have this or have that? But it was more like, yeah, that stuff exists. They just didn't use it that day. They had no reason to, you know, kid didn't need to check his email. There's no point in it. You know, he used his phone to get the message and he went to deliver the package and, you know, they lost the phone. And then at that point they were in the dream and there's no phones in the dream. And it's like, it's around. It's just, you know, yeah. just didn't intersect with the plot line, but it does exist out there. And actually probably the only point it mentions anything that's like more today's technology. And it's very brief is when Alice is first introduced, she's listening to a radio station on a radio app on her smartphone, Yeah, which she eventually ditches the phone. So she can't be tracked. And then she starts listening to music through her iPod. Mm-hmm. It's like her backup playlist basically. Yeah. But who knows? I did my best to create a large world that feels organic and can grow on its own. Mm-hmm. I have certainly thought about, potential characters that exist in that universe that are high tech. Cause I would imagine if this thing exists, the dream and it has existed forever, there are people that know about it or suspect that it exists and are attempting to explore it or exploit it for various directions, you know, whether it's the government or some high tech startup or whoever. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm just making a correlation between the existence of the rise in technology versus the rise in the understanding of the mind and its untapped potential. But Mm. honestly, the rise of the mind and the realization of its untapped potential is not like mainstream in the book, right? It's all under lock and key. At least in the characters that make their way to the story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The characters that are in there, they make an attempt to keep it secret because it's powerful. Yeah. The other piece too, though, and this is kind of a, again, write what you like kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. I sometimes get thrown out of stories that are easily datable. Mm-hmm. You know, if they mention like Facebook or Instagram or something like that, then it like clearly puts it into a certain era. And in fact, I think they do mention Instagram at least once in the book. But um, I try to avoid that as much as possible just so that it can be entertaining to more people for longer periods of time. But still though, even like the words people use, the slang, you know, kid uses a lot of slang, of course, because you know, he's a street kid, but the types of cars, everything, you know, you can't not date a story. I suppose you could. I just can't figure out right how right now. Was any of it uh, Zoomer slang? Because I'm so old and lame right now. I don't know if I'd recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm aged out of that game as well. I'm coming up on 40. Oh, I'm already there. <laughs> I'm aware of some of it. But I have no desire or the ignorance to think that I could use it well or effectively or in any cool way. Yeah, that's what I told myself. I remember when my dad would try to use the slang we were using. I was like, I'm never going to do that. No. Yeah. I'm going to intentionally use this really nerdy stuff. Like my grandma calling, you know, marijuana, cigarette, yeah. you know, wacky tobacco. Have you been smoking pot? Yeah. <laughs> smoking crack. Yeah, exactly. Have you been smoking crack rock? <laughs> Negative, grandma. Well, speaking of the advent of tech, with the advent of tech specifically that seems to inherently have the effect of reducing people's attention span. Do you believe that the fantasy genre inherently demands a longer format to truly capture its essence? And do you think that it'll be one of the exceptions when it comes to the change in the fiction landscape? Because that's kind of, as far as fantasy anyway, it's kind of synonymous with these long, epic tales. Sure. So, I mean, that's definitely a thing. It's documented, it's researched, attention span to have shrunken and are continuing to shrink drastically. 
Whether that affects the length of a story, I'm not sure. I think it definitely affects the way that you would want to tell a story if you wanted it to appeal to a larger audience. Like you can think of it this way, like how many people are willing to watch a three and a half hour movie and then compare that to number of people that will binge, you know, 12 episodes of a season mm. of, of television, you know, like plenty of people will binge an entire season, no problem. And that's, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours straight. And the reason for that, I think, not my area of expertise, but I think that the reason for that is the pacing, you know, it's the pacing. If you look at books written 20 years, 50 years, 100 years ago, a chapter could be 100 pages easily. And they were much more wordy. So even by 20 years ago, we had shorter attention spans. And so the pacing of our stories had changed because of that. And I think it's continuing to change because of that. I made an attempt to lean into that a little bit. But also, again, because of the way I like things, I don't know if my attention span is small necessarily, but I do like things to be fairly fast paced. So most of the chapters are short in the book, even though it's over 500 pages, most of the chapters are 10, 15 pages because I wanted it to feel cinematic in that way. Deep, meaningful, epic, but also quick and punchy. And that's kind of what I mean. Like, I think you can still have a long, big story, but you need to keep people engrossed you know, mm. as much as possible and have a lot of story beats that do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there was any lag in the sales of the, did the newest avatar come out yet? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The something in the water. Yeah. yeah. Cause it was like three hours, I think. Yeah. And yeah, it's like an action movie, right? Whereas if you look at uh, Oppenheimer, you know, that one was a more traditional or more old school storytelling pacing. And there were a lot of complaints on that one about the length of it even though it was the same length, mm -hmm. right? People don't have the patience anymore or possibly the neural capability yeah. anymore. So we sit through stuff that is that long. You know, our brains are changing because of the way we're using them. And that, again, that's documented. That's not theory. Yeah, I'm sure the effect of uh, neuroplasticity can go both ways. It can either yeah. broaden or atrophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just depends on which muscles you exercise, mm -hmm. you know? Like they have, you know, documented shrinkage of the, um, I think it's the hippocampus. Don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure on that. But I think it's the hippocampus, the part of your brain that's mostly responsible for spatial reasoning. Mm -hmm. But by and large, that part of the brain is shrinking in everyone because we don't use it that much anymore because we have GPS for everything. Yeah. We don't have to remember how to get here. And I think everybody has kind of a little story about that. Like, yeah, you know, I drive there every day and I still can't get there without my GPS. It's like, yeah, well, you offloaded the storage of it. Like you outsourced it. Your brain doesn't do that anymore. It doesn't have to. And the brain, if nothing else, is a pattern and efficiency finding machine. It will attempt to be efficient anywhere it possibly can. Yeah, if it is what you're saying, the hippocampus. Listeners at home, we're going to go with hippocampus, but fact check us. And if you find out different, DM me. But let's say that it's the hippocampus. I remember hearing about a study they did on i think it was new york cab drivers and mm -hmm. um, yeah and london and both of them had the bigger than normal actually yeah because they're not uber drivers tethered to this app on their phone that they have to stick to they know where to go when it's rush hour they know where the drop off for the club is you know it's not at the front you got to go around the side if you're one of the comedians performing you know stuff like that that it was just dense and really active it's interesting. Yeah. I hope we're making up for it somehow. 
making some other part of our brain stronger and not just becoming mentally deficient. Mm -hmm. Time will tell, (laughs) I guess. Well, how do you view the relationship between the length of the, the book and its ability to convey depth, complexity, and immersion in general? Yeah, so that was something that was a challenge because if I had written all the parts that I wanted to write, it would have been quite a bit bigger because I wanted to dig deeper into the backstories and character development of a number of the characters in the book. But, you know, going over 400 pages or so is pretty dangerous, especially for your first novel. You know, you don't have your audience's trust yet. Once you do, you can expand them quite a bit. You see that a lot in the second book of a series. It'll be significantly larger than the first. So I knew I had to keep it down. But it is a fantasy book, especially in scope mm-hmm. of the world. And to do that, you need to take some time to explain things. And already at, you know, over 500 pages, to me at least, it felt really fast. Like I really had to put a lot in there for that much. But luckily, at least according to the readers, it went well. Mm-hmm. The pacing is good and it didn't feel left out of anything or that it was too much. But to answer your question succinctly, it's challenging. Well, music, atmosphere, and mood play a large role in dark fantasy. Do you have a specific playlist or environment you prefer when writing? Yeah, definitely. Music is a big part of my writing process and kind of like what I have to do to attain my own flow state. And actually, in the beginning of the book, there's a QR code that links out to a Spotify playlist with essentially what began as my writing playlist for this particular book and eventually turned into like a Rivner themed playlist. And it's all no vocal ambient kind of stuff. So it's the kind of things you could also listen to while reading, Mm -hmm. but primarily it's, you know, it's it's like dark ambient focused music. One of the albums I listened to the most on repeat, two of them actually was music for airports by Brian, Eno, specifically the track Kazakhstan. I listened to Kazakhstan, who knows thousands of times I bet. Mm -hmm. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant track. Super dark, super moody. It definitely puts you into a a certain state of mind. And then the other one is the, which is one of my favorite soundtracks. I love soundtracks, by the way, movie soundtracks, video game soundtracks. And it was the soundtrack to Blade Runner by Vangelis. Blade Runner 1 or 2049? They're both fantastic, but I'm talking about the first one. Okay, because I literally, I swear to God, had 2049 in my mind before you said that. Yeah, I listened to that one a lot, too. I think a couple of those made it in as well. The remake that they made for 2049 of Tears and Rain Mm -hmm. that Vangelis originally had is fantastic. Yeah, I love that movie, period. (laughs) I mean, I'm positive it's because of Denis Villeneuve, but uh, I mean, just... Yeah, he does a good job. He does good work. Yeah, both of those films are two of my all-time favorites. And I don't know if it made it in or not, but I kind of feel like it did. I'm influenced significantly by cyberpunk. Stuff. Oh, yeah. I love cyberpunk. So hopefully a little bit of that DNA made it into the book. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons at the beginning that I assumed it was dystopian. Just kind of uh, the yeah. feel I got. I was like, oh, yeah, something bad has happened. Yeah, we just haven't realized it yet. We're already dystopian. <laughs> well, do you outline your novels or do you, I guess, the popular term is pants? And what are the pros and cons of your chosen method? pants or plan. Yeah. So I'm pretty hybrid. It depends on what I'm trying to accomplish. I think certain types of things lend themselves well to organic and other things it would be wise to plan it. Like, do you have to? Not necessarily, but if you don't want to 
risk having to rewrite, you know, a couple hundred pages because you've painted yourself into a corner, then it's probably a good idea to plan a little mm-hmm. bit. So I do plan a decent amount, especially around characters. I like to have a good idea of who the players are, because if they have clear motives and clear needs, clear fears for the most part, then they will typically take the story somewhere interesting. And so I try to just build a full world and clear characters and then let them kind of go where they're going to go. And then that discovery process of where is it that they go, that's really fun for me. And I feel like if it's fun for me to discover that, then it may end up being fun for the reader to discover that too. Because the worry I have is if I plan too much, then it will be inherently predictable. So yeah, I do both. And like I said, again, it depends on what I'm writing. Like dialogue, dialogue is really hard, by the way, I think is the biggest challenge for me. But dialogue, you know, I like to write that longhand, Mm. for example. I don't like to type it out necessarily. I feel like it comes out more organically if I write it longhand. Whereas if I have a scene planned out, I'll type it on the computer because then my fingers can keep up with what's already inside my head. So yeah, I feel like they're both just tools. You know, I feel like that question is like asking a carpenter, like, so do you use a saw or a hammer? It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. Why do you find dialogue? I mean, I can think of a million reasons, but in particular, why do you find dialogue to be difficult? Uh, yeah, a lot of reasons. So I think dialogue is probably one of the most powerful and efficient tools that you have as a writer to do almost anything. You know, like with a single word given context, you can allude to great depth in a character mm-hmm. without actually having to go into any of that detail, but it's there and people get it. Even if it's subconscious, they get it if you do it right. Similarly, if you do it wrong or do it poorly, you can completely break the suspension of disbelief and all of a sudden they're aware that they're reading something rather than being immersed into a world. And then, of course, the gap between amazing dialogue that gives people this subconscious inheritance of you know knowledge of this character in the world versus it being terrible and they laugh when they should be crying there's a lot there's a big spectrum mm-hmm. in there and yeah and it's tough you know every character speaks differently but then again there's plenty of writers out there that their dialogue is clearly written by the author and it's still good so it's kind of amorphous it's really difficult to pin down what is good dialogue except that you know when it's bad Mm. you know when it's not good you know but as far as any rules that they have all the rules that they have get broken constantly Mm. by people and it's still good so i don't know it's weird but it's fun it's challenging right well in your bio it states that you work as a product designer for i believe it was biotechnology companies plural so more than one are you a freelancer contract yeah so Correct. Yeah, correct. Um, Way back when, when I decided I didn't want to be a carpenter anymore and I wanted to do something a little bit more directly creative and get back to kind of like my visual design roots, I got into uh, web design. And then that was around like 2011. So it pretty quickly turned into app design instead because that's what people wanted at the time. And then I moved to San Francisco uh, because that's where everybody was that was doing it. And I built my career there over about 10 years doing like the typical, you know, corporate grind. And the bulk of my career was for health, wellness, biotech companies, stuff like, you know, Fitbit, uh, various sleep health companies, heart health companies and startups, which is fun. It's a really fun mixture of art, science and psychology. 
when you're designing like the user experiences of these things. Um, but after the corporate grind in San Francisco, I decided I wanted to take kind of a sabbatical. And then into the sabbatical, I realized I could just freelance and I didn't need to go back in a hurry. And then that turned into traveling around, mostly writing and working as a freelancer for the following you know, five, six, seven years. And now I'm in Prague, Czech Republic. But as we speak right now, you're in NYC, right? Correct. I am in New York City at the moment. Is that for work or? It was just an opportunity, mainly. I had a friend who was going on vacation, so they needed a house sitter. Oh. So I was like, okay, so I can go to New York and not have to pay. <laughs> much Good God, I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would cost me enough that I would not be here. Yeah, give them my number. Cost. I'm I'm down um, to <laughs> I'm down yeah, to house sit anytime. No, I'm, I'm keeping them a I'm, secret. This is my I'm very secret. clean. Um, yeah, so yeah, so I was like, okay, this sounds like a pretty good idea. I love New York, but it's just so exorbitantly expensive that I don't come mm-hmm. here. So it seems like an opportunity not to pass up. And while I'm here, I'm going to make an attempt to meet readers. I've been meeting some people off Bookstagram, mm-hmm. which is really fun, meeting them in real life and signing their books. And I uh, went to Comic-Con, got some nerd out there, <laughs> meet a bunch of authors and writers and artists and cosplayers and things, mm-hmm. and go into all the bookstores. New York is definitely a magical city, especially for writing and creativity. It's just buzzing with people making stuff. I love that. And then also I wanted to network here for my design business since that's still how I pay the bills. <laughs> nice. Outstanding. Well, your bio mentions an interest in, you know, things that we've been talking about, consciousness, cognition. It also mentions addiction. Mm. Where does this interest come from? So I mentioned earlier that I grew up fairly rough mm. in a pretty rough area, pretty economically depressed area. And it's now sadly spread to pretty much the entire United States, but the opioid Mm. epidemic. Mm. It felt like I was there really when it started, when I was just finishing up high school around 2001, 2002. And at that point it was Oxycontin primarily, which is a prescription medication, an opioid. And it was just being passed out like candy to anybody that had any type of affliction. You know, you twist your ankle, here's some Oxycontin. Bust your knee, here's some Oxycontin. Wisdom teeth out, here's some Oxycontin. And so you know, everybody was getting hooked on this stuff and everybody had it in everybody's medicine cabinets. So we were all doing it for fun, you know, to party because, you know, it gets you high. It's a good time. We didn't know that we were doing synthetic heroin. Um, oh, no, it's safe. It had a coating and, on it. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Yeah, but we'd get it wet. Even if it's slow released, it's still not like it's not addictive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the coating is not difficult to remove. Um yeah. And so then, you know, over the course of the following years, you know, I've lost count now, but I've probably lost, I don't know, 30, 40 friends mm. to overdoses and other drug and drug life related deaths. You know, it's just ridiculous, including my brother. My brother passed away three years ago to an overdose and that hit pretty hard. Mm. And so there was definitely some pretty deep things that I wanted to write about in this book at least touch on them from kind of like a safe place Mm -hmm. regarding trauma and addiction and loss. Again, universal themes, right? But, you know, I wanted to explore those things in a meaningful way, but also from a kind of a safe, a safe space of fiction. Mm. Sorry for your loss. Can't imagine dealing with that. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. It was crazy. It's just like, it's common now, Mm -hmm. you know? Like almost everybody I know has a story like that or their friend does, you know, it's really 
quite the awful situation in the U.S. with the opiates. Yeah, the city I work in, it's a smaller town, really, uh, very rural. The big three, they called it the Three Amigos. It was uh, Vicodin, Xanax, and Soma. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there was OxyContin, but even though it was being doled out, you still had to have a pretty good reason to get it because it was so powerful. But like Vicodin was just, you know, yeah, they give you a 90 day supply with six refills, you know, whatever. And there was these two doctors in town. They were pain management specialists. And and just because I use air quotes, I don't mean that there aren't legitimate pain management specialists, but these guys were not. They were drug dealers, basically. And I remember when the DEA raided their offices, all of a sudden their clients could no longer get their stuff and people were dropping and having seizures all over the place. It was horrible. Mm. Yeah. Opiate withdrawal is no joke. Well, speaking of drugs of a more benevolent nature, (laughs) you had mentioned, I believe, was it psilocybin we were talking about earlier? Uh, I just said hallucinogens. Just hallucinogens. Um, And and yeah, Yeah. psilocybin mushrooms has been an interesting thing. But the, the experience that really inspired a big part of this was actually ayahuasca. That's what I was going to ask you about. Ayahuasca or psilocybin, but, uh, you know, I think with psilocybin, with mushrooms too, people tend to have an impression of kind of oneness, you know, with the universe or the feeling that there's more than them and, but that they're part of that thing too, which is probably why it tends to be super effective. They're finding it to be super effective with PTSD, with veterans, with helping drug addiction, Mm -hmm. things like that, because it kind of makes you feel like you're part of things instead of lost, which is interesting. But ayahuasca though, Oh boy. That Not for is, the faint of heart. <laughs> no, 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 no. That is an experience. Like, uh, I don't even want to call it a trip. Like you do mushrooms. Like, yeah, I tripped on mushrooms. Just like, no, you don't trip on ayahuasca. You, you figure some stuff out and you go places and mm. there are points in it that you are quite sure that you're not coming back and it can be scary, but also through that scary part, you learn something about yourself. And oftentimes you'll experience something called ego death, mm. which is a fancy way of saying feeling like you died without actually dying. Mm-hmm. And then you come to terms with that fact and then you come back and then you kind of realize that it maybe isn't as big of a deal as you thought it was, or rather that it's just simply not the end. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do one of those Amazon, those guided? Oh God, no. I wish I'd done something cool like that. I don't know. I would not want to be in the Amazon rainforest on some sort of hallucinogen some massive snake comes at you. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It sounds cool. It's thing. Like, it sounds cool. I honestly, having done it now, there's no way I would want to do it like in a jungle surrounded by the unknown and mosquitoes and stuff. No way. No, I, I did it in a total redneck way, which in hindsight, I'm really glad I did it this way because I think it's superior. <laughs> <laughs> so you get the stuff, you make some tea and you drink it. And so we had, you know, we had a campfire or like a bonfire in the backyard. We had comfortable places to sit and chill it was me and my friend and we had a couple people that were not on anything and they were kind of like our guardians to make sure we didn't, you know, get ourselves in trouble and they'd bring us water if we were thirsty or a blanket if we were cold, that kind of a thing. And just let us kind of do our thing. So I feel like we did it correctly, hmm. just not the way most people expect you to do it. And yeah, it was a journey. How it long was, was it? Uh, in total, probably like six hours. Six hours. Did it come yeah. on slow and then taper off or was it just like... 
Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I mean, it's similar to the other hallucinogens out there. It kind of has sort of a bell graph to it, you know, like it comes on slow, then you peak and yeah. it's very intense and you're peaking. That's what they call it. And then you come down and you go from peaking to tripping and then everything's just kind of fuzzy and weird. And then you're kind of tired and like wondering like, wow, what do I know now? Mm. Yeah. What was it? I think it was Rogan that said when you do, uh, I think he was talking about just straight DMT that he smoked or shot in a laboratory setting with medical personnel. But that, that 15 minutes of just, you know, like <laughs> your head exploding. Yeah. He was saying how, uh, he's like, yeah, it was like my brain was a computer desktop full of icons. And after, <laughs> after the trip, the, the whole desktop was cleared off and there was just one icon labeled my old bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I, I, I believe it. Cause like, it's almost funny to even talk about cause it just sounds so outlandish. But the thing is like, like this, this happened at least in, in my mind, you know, I've never done DMT, but I assume that DMT feels like a shorter version of the peak of ayahuasca. Cause at the peak, I mean, my body mm-hmm. was in our living room but my mind was not i was flying through outer space at the speed of light you know i was flying past planets and stars and thinking wow i'm going really fast i should have told my grandma where i'm going she's never gonna <laughs> see me again like legit like that was one of my main thoughts like oh makes i love my grandma yeah. pieces i was like i didn't even tell her i was going anywhere uh, i'm never coming home there's no way i could come home i'm so far away already and i'm getting farther by the second I'm like oh it's yeah. a bummer and then you kind of settle <laughs> into it and like wrong well, i can't do that i can't change it so i might as well enjoy this little adventure and then you know it's kind of like that, like your brain is just shooting through where, and you know, that's like the question is like, where is your mind? Like, are you just dreaming? Is it a type of dream? Like, mm-hmm. is it really somewhere else? Like, we don't know. Mm. We act like we know and we don't know. We do not. Scientists have no clue. Mm. Like, it looks like a brain scan. It looks like some electricity. But if you do a scan of a computer, it looks like electricity. It's doing stuff though. Mm. Things are happening. And they could be interacting with other things, other places, you know, invoking processes and things like it's doing something, I think. But yeah, part of it, though, you're talking about all my bullshit, turning all the shortcuts into one shortcut. Like one thing that was super wild is at one point I felt like I could see my like vascular system mm-hmm. glowing sort of. And I'm like looking at my hand, I'm looking at my body and I can like see all my veins and stuff like an anatomy mm-hmm. textbook cutaway, you yeah. know, and I see this little like kind of nodule that looks unhealthy i'm like what is that looks funky it's like a blackberry kind of and then it dawns on me like oh okay that's my addiction to cigarettes Mm -hmm. get rid of that definitely i don't need that and so i just go in there pluck it out and throw it away i was like okay that was a good idea and i didn't smoke again that was it no shit see i've heard about that well we were talking about it as being a treatment for addiction yeah and straight up i mean because up until that point i had been smoking since I was like 13, mm-hmm. you know, Marlboro Reds, not anything light, you know, anywhere from half a pack to a couple packs a day mm. for 10 years. I mean, I was definitely addicted to nicotine and just bloop. All right, never mind. Nice. That's enough of that. Hmm. Endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Well, what is the life of Garrett Godsey like outside of writing and traveling the astral plane as a psychonaut (laughs) (laughs) i have not traveled the astral plane in a long time unless you count with my imagination and writing stories that was that was a a one-time thing and it was a long time ago Mm. and honestly i feel like i could do it again someday if i felt the need to Mm. 
like again it didn't feel like a recreational thing it was like okay if you need to do this again do it but don't yeah. play around with this either like just remember that this tool is there if you need it so anyways my life is you know pretty much writing designing um, i've got two daughters two very adorable daughters two and a half and one so they definitely you know take a lot of time they're beautiful i love them and that's pretty much it i work out and i take walks and i travel when i can and just kind of live life nice. make it easy sounds awesome my friend well it has been a pleasure talking with you you as well this is a fun conversation thank you absolutely well so as we bring the show to a close is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about yeah you bet go buy my book garrett godsey the rivener the rivener you can find it online on amazon you can also go to garrettgodseybooks.com and follow the link there and tell you what go to garrettgodsey.com or go on instagram garrett godsey books there as well and shoot me a dm or an email i'll just send you the ebook for free nice all right you heard it people get on that read the rivener and if you are needing him to repeat that do not worry because all links will be in the description and garrett thank you again for joining me <laughs> you are welcome thanks for having me take care and thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer of short stories that dive into the darkest depths of the human heart. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Catching on 